if my relationship ever falls apart, I'm just going to say Voldemort happened. Voldemort did it. Welcome to Random Fandom, everyone. I'm Britt Kelly, your friendly neighborhood pansexual non-binary spokesbeing. Ah, spokesbeing. I love it. <laughs> uh, and I am Stephanie Weaver, your friendly neighborhood Marxist queer buddy. <laughs> I speak for no one but myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I like the term spokesbeing, but I don't know what I'm a spokesbeing for. Probably just the gay agenda. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about that Wizarding Boarding School series. And we're going to leave that it at one. that. I'm sure everyone knows what we're talking about. To be clear, we're talking about the Wizarding Boarding School series, the one with the characters Hermione and her friends Ron and Harry, that one talking yep. about that one um yeah I guess we'll start just by talking about our relationships with that we are both elder millennials who basically came of age as the Harry Potter books were coming out so we both I'm sure have relationships with that I'll have you start Stephanie because I have talked about this a lot so what what's your relationship with Harry Potter when did you first discover it yeah so um you saying that like we came of age with Harry Potter like I actually the first book came out when I was 11 so like I I first read about 11 year old Harry when I was 11 and the last book came out when I was 19 I think I was I was flying back from my study abroad trip to France and I managed to pick up, it was like the day the book came out, and I managed to pick up an English language copy of The Deathly Hallows when I was at the airport to take my transatlantic flight. So it really was, I, it was like I grew up with Harry and Ron and Hermione and all of the others in a lot of ways. Yeah, I just was curious now when that came out. It came out in two th 2007. I remember picking up a copy at a bookstore in France. And of course, at the time, they only had the English language versions available. So I bought one of those. I mm -hmm. was 21 at the time when the final book came out. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you you really did grow up with it. So I really did. Yeah, I, I like the the new book coming out. I because my I had religious parents who were like, Oh, we don't know about this wizarding stuff. <laughs> because they would never curse, right? Because they were mm -hmm. too Christian. I had to wait for the local library to get a copy before mm -hmm. I could read them. So yeah. that was always like the I would go to the library like every week to see if they had it in yet. And oh, wow. Then, yeah. Yeah. So what was that like for you? discovering it at the time let's think about 11 year old stephanie how did yeah. 11 year old stephanie feel about harry potter 11 year old stephanie immediately related to hermione because <laughs> i was like the weird know-it-all kid that people didn't like because i was so smart and so especially in that first book where harry and ron aren't really friends with hermione yet where like ron's still kind of picking on her and everybody's mm. kind of picking on her like that was something that 11 year old stephanie really related to yeah um and i think also just that i didn't feel like i fit in very well as a kid and the whole story of harry being in this family that he doesn't fit in with and then discovering there's a reason why 
He doesn't fit in with them. I kept like looking for my reason for why I didn't fit in with them, with my family. Spoiler alert. It's probably in part because I was super queer, but that'll do it. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) Would you call yourself a fan of Harry Potter? I was a huge fan. I think I'm still a fan deep in my heart. I, well, I think I'm looking forward to us having a discussion about what it means to be a fan of something because I feel like nothing troubles my relationship to it like this particular wizarding boarding school series. (laughs) Yeah, I, that's actually, I'm going to add that question to our questions I think we're gonna I'll just put it as the first question Brit is secretly typing away yes yeah, secretly typing away yeah so I Harry Potter was not something that I discovered at 11 I could have but I did not I uh I discovered it actually when it was my first year in high school and the first movie was coming out and I had My parents had moved me to a private school because I was getting into trouble in the public school and like starting to hang around with kids who were interested in drinking and trying drugs and and having sex. And I was just very depressed and engaging in self-harm and and just dangerous kind of activities. And so my parents were like, let's move to schools, which at the time really upset me, but I think was actually a really, really good idea on their part. So in an attempt to make new friends at this new school, I was invited fairly early on to go see this movie. And I didn't really know what it was. I think I thought it probably sounded kind of kid-like and kind of stupid. And I don't know that I was really interested in it. But I went because I was desperate to make new friends. All of the friends that I had had in middle school had kind of just dropped me from their friend group. I hadn't, I wasn't hearing from them pretty much. And so I needed some social outlet. So even though these friends at the time seemed to me kind of like, oh, very childlike, not as edgy or, you know, whatever (laughs) as I was, I was like, well, I'll go, I'll go see this movie with you guys, whatever. And I, I don't really know what happened. I think, so. you know, that's the interesting thing about fandoms is we don't always know how to articulate why it is we find something so appealing. I would never have guessed that I would have found this world through the movie, a movie directed by Christopher Columbus in a very much Home Alone fashion. Um, yeah. and, very, and it's a very like, a very lighthearted kind of saccharine and also very faithful adaptation of the first book. Yeah. And yet there's something about, there was something about the moving music and the mystery and the whimsy of the universe. And I think you put it really well, the sense of being an outsider and for so long and being cruelly treated by people who should support you for so long and then finally sort of creating a found family in a space where you feel like you really do belong or you find a way to force some sense of belonging which was certainly something that Harry was going through because he never really fit in with his really abusive family at all and he didn't as far as I can tell, it seems like he had zero friends from 
his schooling up until going to Hogwarts. You know, Hermione's trying to fit in because she's muggle-born and, you know, really wants to achieve at a high level and is very almost too academic, I think, for some of the Mm -hmm. others, sort of like trying too hard maybe. And then Ron feels like kind of the left out black sheep sort of of his family, particularly, you know, he looks at his oldest brothers who are really succeeding well. And then there's, you know, his twin brothers who are funny and well-liked. Like he's sort of the black sheep in that regard, the youngest boy. So they're all outsiders in one way or another and they find each other and forge this family and I think there was something about that along with whimsy and magic and this separate world that had so much possibility for it I think possibility is a good way to describe it so for whatever reason I, I saw the movie and I immediately fell in love which was not at all what I expected I thought I would think it was very again saccharine kid-like stupid and I loved it and I immediately borrowed all the books and read them as quickly as I could at the time I borrowed all of those and then after reading them I was even more of a fan there again I think there was something about the whimsy and the depth of the universe and the sort of secret world of of wizards and witches who had to hide and that some muggles could be could become witches and wizards potentially there was a lot about i think not just the um, the characters of hermione harry and ron that was very very appealing in terms of learning who they were and seeing their relationship develop but also just the larger socio-political concerns of that world and the magic of that world and at the time in high school I was also studying Latin so it was kind of fun to like think about the spells and all of that you know and I was taking a world history class so so some of the things in terms of like the mythology that Rowling was playing with all of that was very very appealing and you know after that point I was definitely a diehard fan I was a huge fan of Harry Potter I just I wanted to get my hands on the books I discussed it with my friends we would go to the movies when they came out we would do the the midnight release of the books eventually that meant uh dressing up as Harry Potter and having you know Harry Potter themed parties and things like that I mean it was just such a huge part of my whole friend group and my growing up and becoming a person it was a whole part of our identities for sure this whole universe that we could play with I was at the time I would call myself a very like I was a huge fan but I was the kind of fan who was very invested in the canon and like understanding the canon in depth I was not a fan who had discovered like transformative works yet that came a lot later So for me, like this book was really just a sense of like a whole universe that I could have in my head and know really well and revisit the books more than once and, Mm -hmm. and the movies. And I just really loved the universe. And I, I think even still the, again, the sociopolitical depth of the world and the way magic works and thinking through that is still something that I find really, really intriguing and yeah, I don't think that will ever go away. And I th- I think like you, as you said earlier, I would I think I would say I'm still a fan. I don't think that's ever going to go away. It's such a huge 
formative part of my development as a person and, you know, and, and in my career, as well as just on a personal level that I don't think I will ever not be a fan of Harry Potter, but like you, I, I think it's one of the fandoms that I find really, I find it difficult now in the past couple of years, basically since 2020 to sort of think through what that means. Yeah, I think like as you were talking I was thinking about I think that shift from like canon into transformative works is a is a big thing like I think what I would say now is that I'm not so much a fan of Harry Potter but I am a fan of Harry Potter fandom Mm -hmm. like I love and I know we're going to talk more about like what kinds of like fanfics we like later but I really love stories that think through some of these different like the systems of magic. What? Mm-hmm. How exactly is magic working here? How is that different in other parts of the world? How can that be culturally specific to some places versus others? I really like stories that think through the relationships between the politics, basically. So like, how do different political entities in the wizarding world relate to each other? How do they relate to muggles? That whole thing. Mm. So it's the it's the works that really expand on the world that I find the most interesting because it is such a weird and cool and fun world to play in. Mm -hmm. And I think that whole thing about like, it's a hidden world, a secret world behind our own world is a big part of the appeal. And it was for me when I was younger. Now that like, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that's what it was. Like I loved, I really got into the Narnia books when I was younger mm. too, um, even more than Tolkien. Like I read Tolkien, I enjoy Tolkien, but they, I've never felt about Tolkien like I feel about Narnia, even though arguably Tolkien is much richer and more deep in terms of like the world building and stuff and I think a big part of that is the fact that like in Tolkien the world is just the world but in Narnia it's about this like hidden world behind our own world that's part of the appeal yeah that's interesting actually so uh, I think it's it's interesting because I know that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were friends and used to Mm -hmm. hang out at this pub called the angel or the eagle and the child sorry in Oxford and what I love is like they were friends they would drink together and hang out but apparently Tolkien hated how allegorical C.S. Lewis is right where he was like yeah I could just imagine him in the in the pub like working on a pint of bitter and just being like why did you have to make Oh, Aslan, Aslan is God, Aslan, uh, like just making yeah. fun of him. Like, why, dude? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, like, if I think about some of the things that were really intriguing to me, and I think probably intriguing to a lot of us, that the fair that was presented to us as children, you have the secret garden, for example, which yes. I remember really loving yes. this place where you had a key and no, no no adults were interfering. You have, as you pointed out, the Chronicles of Narnia, where they can enter it through this wardrobe and it's the secret world behind their world is very rich and has its own history. I'm trying to think of like the bridge to Terabithia was really uh, again yeah. very like heartbreaking at the end but again it's this it's this world that they created for themselves and I feel like any I was especially drawn to stories where you could enter this separate world that only you knew about and how to mm-hmm. to navigate to and you were 
I don't know, a key, a key person there and a full person there. Maybe that's the other part of it is not just mm-hmm. this world that's behind our world. But if you think about the characters in those worlds that they create or find their way into, they're like full self-actualized human beings in these world where in the real world, they're just children, right? Yeah. And maybe that's part of it too. Like not just feeling the outsider status and finding your found family, which I do think is a key part of probably all of these stories really, but also the sense of like, in my everyday world, I am just a kid and uh, no one really listens to me and my needs are defined by someone else. And in these stories, I get to escape to something where I get to be in charge of who I am and what I know and what I want to do and be, yeah, just be a full person and even potentially be a hero, although you don't have to be one necessarily. I don't know. I, now I'm like, why is that so inviting this sense of this magical world behind our own well I I also think about how many of the books that I enjoyed as a child and I think this is true of a lot of stuff that is presented to to kids how often they feature orphans there are so (laughs) many orphans in like young adult lit um (laughs) and I like I think that Gosh, I always felt terrible about this when I was a kid, but sometimes I was like, sometimes I wish I was an orphan. And maybe, maybe that's part of the appeal of the world behind the world is like, you can go somewhere where you are beyond the auspices of your parents without having them actually die, I guess. Yeah, although Harry's an orphan, but Hermione isn't. Hermione gets to go to this world that is very different and she gets to be fully self-actualized in this world in certain ways but her parents are still alive so maybe she's but she's she's at a boarding school yeah they're not her parents aren't really there yeah it's all of these situations where kids are are left without I actually remember reading very few books when I was younger where like parents were actually consistently there and like involved in their kids lives It's so interesting, isn't it? You're completely right. I'm thinking about so many books where either they are orphans or their parents are just kind of off doing whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so weird because like these stories are super appealing, I think, again, because of this sense of being able to be yourself and, and decide for yourself, I think. And yet (laughs) looking at it now, I'm like, these stories are horrifying. Where are the parents? Why are they not paying any attention to them? Uh, I'm finishing up reading his dark materials right now. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't read the books before, but I, we started watching the show, which is the new, the new show on, on HBO is really well done. So I was like, I'm going to try these books. And I think like, if I had discovered these as a child, I would have been equally interested in them. But I look at this now and I'm just like, her, Lyra's parents are horrible. Nobody wants parents like that. They're just abusive, self-concerned, terrorist level, horrific. And and even the stories where the parents aren't horrific in that way, they're just completely unconcerned. And I look at it now and I'm like, that's awful. Like, why, why was that so appealing? And it didn't concern me. Like in reality, if that had been my reality, it would have been like huge neglect. And like, I I needed parents who were going to be there to make certain decisions. And 
and lay certain boundaries down in reality. And yet that's not the fantasy you want to have, I guess, as a kid. Yeah. I'll let you know how I feel about the end of his dark materials. I'm like, I, I just, I, the I put it on our, it. <laughs> I put it on our list of things to talk about eventually because I, well, I would love an excuse to go back and reread them. So they're very interesting. And I think there's a lot to say in those books about yep. night. Uh, how are the height of economic security for Westerners imagines the world <laughs> and thinks uh, about institutions like the church. <laughs> so many things. To yeah. Say. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, well, another episode. Another episode. <laughs> Do we want to talk about fan fiction? Yeah, let's talk about fan fiction. All right. Uh, I have a lot of notes here, but if if you want to get if you want to start and then because I have a no, very- I think. I think we should start with you because you were actually the one that got me into HP fan fiction. I never oh. read HP fan fiction before you. Oh, so. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. I get it's to all give your myself fault. a little hug. <laughs> uh, so I, very weirdly, I did not discover fan fiction until I would say about 2006, 2007. I think it was probably... 2007 I think it was the fall of my senior year of college which is weird because I had a live journal I think either 2002 or 2003 like I this was probably about 2002 about my started at my sophomore year of high school because my group of friends all had live journals and we were all linked to each other and, and talking to each other th- through journal posts and I shared poetry there and but there, we never did any fan stuff these were friends who were introducing me to Sailor Moon Clearly, there was places on LiveJournal at that time that already had fan fiction going on. And somehow I never discovered any of it. The earliest fan thing I discovered that I think probably the earliest engagement with fandom, whether it be Sailor Moon or, you know, Tolkien or Harry Potter was DeviantArt. That's probably my earliest engagement with transformative works. And because I wasn't good at that type of artwork, I, I looked at it, but I never submitted anything for it. I mainly engaged through the the official books and the official movies and just talking through about them with friends. And then this website MuggleNet, which basically was just a news site for when is the next book coming out? What have we heard about casting on the on the next movie? What's the next project? And so I would I would check that frequently just to see what the news was about that element of the fandom but I didn't really look at what fan fiction was or had heard of it or really anything until about after the final book was released in the summer of 2007 I finished it and then I just was like oh I need more like it's over now and I don't know what to do with myself and I was looking at MuggleNet I think just kind of like what else is there I know there can't be anything because the last thing came out I went on to MuggleNet and there was this thing called fan fiction and maybe I had heard the word but I really wasn't sure what it was so I clicked on it and I was like okay these are stories written about the universe all right I'm looking for more content so I'll click on one I think the first one I read was this cute love story between Harry and Ron and there's the I remember they're them kind of slowly figuring out that they were in love with each other there's the scene where uh, they're getting up to some kind of 
shenanigans trying to solve mysteries as they do and they end up having to hide in a in like a broom closet and they're really close to each other and there's the whole trope of like oh we're really close and oh suddenly we've realized we're very attracted to each other and Hermione eventually like is helping them develop this relationship and but keep it on the down low because you know it would be stigmatized because it's a gay relationship I feel like it was very I really loved it I loved Harry and Ron as a pairing actually I basically love just about any pairing with Ron (laughs) I like Ron as a character in a way that fandom doesn't necessarily love and some of the fandoms I've been involved with but I stumbled on that and I was I was reading a lot of Harry and Ron stories and I, I I'm sure I saw Harry and Draco stories and then I saw this grouping of stories that was labeled like Hermione and Severus Snape and I was like Ugh. <laughs> like why what is this and out of the same reason we need to rubberneck at car accidents and other things I was like I have to see what this that's disgusting why are people doing it and I, apparently that was my path to radicalization I don't know <laughs> what you want to call it <laughs> That was that was like the link too far where YouTube was now presenting me with the most radical <laughs> videos and I was just eating them up. Yeah, I, I looked into it and I think it just it was luck because the, the first few stories I found, my concern, of course, was like, well, Snape is I, I was always I always liked Snape as a character. I, I think I definitely liked Alan Rickman as an actor. I obviously recognized mm-hmm. him from Die Hard and I was like, uh, you know, there's something intriguing about him. Mm -hmm. I was never convinced that he was fully evil in the way that we were supposed to believe, but also he's a teacher and Hermione is a student and there's a huge age gap. And I was like, why? But I think the, the first couple of stories I read were them as adults, like really coming together through an intellectual bond, right? They were both academically thoughtful and rigorous and really most of the stories were about them doing research together or being teachers and doing research together at the school well after Hermione has graduated. And so not that I didn't later see stories where they start having sex in her like seventh year when she's old enough uh, to consent according to U.S. law, which I did read and I have enjoyed depending on the story we'll get into that I feel really really weird about it but yeah I, I I ended up actually really falling in love with the pairing and I and again I think it's the space where you said earlier I don't know that I'm a fan of Harry Potter in terms of canon I'm a fan of Harry Potter fanon right that the whole yeah. fan universe that's been developed because a lot of it really does dig deeply into the sociopolitical. It digs deeply into the characters. It digs deeply into the possibilities. And honestly, in most of the stories between Severus Snape and Hermione Granger, they're not written as this age difference. That's usually not the focus. Usually the way the characters are written is almost as if they're close, much closer in age. They're they're like kindred spirits in the stories. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't know I'm I don't I want to talk about the troubling aspects of this but for me I really fell in love with it. The first story I discovered that I absolutely adored I think it's because it has a lot of elements that I really really love was the story called Somewhere I Have Never Traveled by Savage Land. It's an extremely long story. You can now access it as a PDF online. It's like a 377 page long PDF. Wow. <laughs> That's from like the title of it all the way through to the end of the book. 
And I, this, it was several chapters long. And I remember, I think I had gotten to, I don't know, some ridiculously high number of chapters. And then it was like, oh, the rest of the story can be found at this website called Sycophant Hex. And that's how I discovered a Harry Potter focused fan fiction website. And that was really my entree into fandom. And really for the longest time, my, my fandom's base of choice was this place called Sycophant Hex. And while I did, they have a number of different archives there for more general fic for they they happen to have two archives that are really focused on Severus Snape one is Severus Snape in particular and different kinds of pairings and and stories called occlumency and then there's the the a whole sub archive devoted entirely to Hermione Granger and Severus Snape ship stories called Ashwinder and I did most of my reading in that for a really long time some of those fan writers also wrote in a place called the Petulant Poetess. And so I, I read some stories there as well. But my main site was this very niche created site by fans for fans for the purpose of high quality Harry Potter fan fiction. So that was my my entree into it. And I, the story itself, the, the story is about basically Harry Potter did defeat Voldemort. So he Voldemort doesn't win in the story. But mm-hmm. Ron is killed in a horrific attack at, at the school and a, a number of other people are as well. And in the story, it sort of sets the theme that like basically Voldemort developed this huge like weapon of mass con- uh, destruction, <laughs> which is interesting to read in the story in 2005. That just yeah. really completely destroyed a number of people. And the result was quite a bit of destruction of just sort of the existing wizarding world. And you have the story where it's something like 32 years after the final battle. So at the at the end of what would have been their senior year, they have the final battle and they're still have ongoing terrorist cells popping up for Death Eaters, basically continuing to try and and just cause terror and take over the government and stuff. So that's kind of the setting. We've got a Hermione in a 32 years after the fact where Ron is dead and for some reason, Harry has never, ever lost his his flame for hunting down Draco Malfoy, who does not become, uh, he does not get a redemption arc in this particular story, though yeah. he is given a redemption arc in many uh, stories in the fandom yep. that I've seen. And she's doing this research on long distance time turners. It's not really clear why, but basically she develops a time turner that can send you back 20 years or more. But it's a one-way trip, and at some point in the story, she believes Harry has died hunting down Draco Malfoy, and he give, he sends her this dream where he's like, take the one-way trip, Hermione, and eventually she decides, what if I did go back and develop a counter curse to this weapon of mass destruction that Voldemort developed, and I can save all of these people beforehand right because she's the one who developed the counter curse but well after the fact after a bunch of people died so she's kind of like well maybe I'll go back through that she does end up going back in time she takes the one-way trip she partners with Severus Snape who in the in the story he had been like basically the the master while she was finishing like her potions apprenticeship kind of thing at, at Hogwarts before graduating 
So she had worked with them before she goes back. She, she, uh, she's got a low level glamour. Nobody recognizes her as Hermione. She goes by a different name. She makes all of this fake information so that she can go in for the purposes of, of working in a research lab with Severus Snape to develop a counter curse before it happens. And that means she ends up saving Ron and Severus, but also at the end of the story, like the Hermione from that universe where all of these people died dissolves, but all of the memories of that Hermione then go into the younger Hermione. And there's a whole thing about love story, but through the process of going back in time and fixing these things, first of all, she realizes that Harry went back in time as well. And second of all, obviously she falls in love with Severus. So a lot of the story Mm -hmm. is not just really complex time travel stuff, which I love time travel stories and not just a really interesting look into the socio-political world of Harry Potter and the the certainly the the kind of world that was left for them after the final battle but also it's it's at its heart a, a slow burn love story between a, a Hermione who at that point's like 50 years old so older than Severus Snape when she goes back in time so he's only like 37 and she's like 50 in the story so it's like it, it definitely there's so much about it where like it it changes the dynamic of age difference for most of the love story. It's playing with with time travel. It's playing with all of these things. Uh, what if things went right, but not really right? And how can we fix them? Yeah. And this was a story that I started reading. And I, it's a, one of the many stories at that time period where I stayed up until like seven in the morning to read the <laughs> entirety of it. And I just, I just fell in love with it. And after that, I... I needed to read more Hermione and Severus Snape stories. And that's that's sort of, that's uh, all she wrote after that. (laughs) I, I now feel troubled by it a little bit. I was, that was my main ship. That was my main set of stories for a really long time was the Severus Snape and Hermione Granger stories. And I don't know what the appeal is. I think part of the appeal was the way fandom writes Severus Snape compared to the way Severus isn't canon. Severus Snape of canon is not necessarily a lovable character. Yeah. And I don't, and I think particularly book canon, I feel like the Mm -hmm. way Alan Rickman played Severus Snape brought and, and, and sort of who he is as an actor, I think brought some sense of like, likability to Severus Snape in a way and and like snarkiness to Snape that like in the in the book the way that he is written is is not snarky it's not sardonic it's nasty and in the movies he's more yeah he's sardonic he's snarky he's not a great teacher but he is certainly an interesting person behind all of that and I think that's that's really the appeal for a lot of fans is they kind of they write Severus Snape as like an Alan Rickman Metatron figure, that snarky, sardonic, (laughs) sort of world-weary character who's also very competent and dedicated to helping save the world after his stupid teenager mistakes. And then, yeah, Hermione in the story, she, I think the other appeal is Hermione is like basically the main focus of all of these stories. And she gets to save the day through her research and her and her academic acumen and her strength of character in a way that is really backgrounded in a lot of the original books. And yeah. while 
I actually really love Hermione and Ron as a pairing in certain ways. I, I feel like they balance each other well. On the other hand, if you have a, an incredibly intelligent, which that's the way Snape is written by a lot of fandom, is this really, again, equally intelligent researcher. And you put these two like very intelligent, basically people working on, <laughs> you know, postdoctoral research or something, or just long-term yeah. research stuff together, then you get a meeting of the minds. And I think that's actually really, really appealing. And you get to, to really dive into that. And I think that really a- appealed to me quite a bit to see Hermione be a hero in the realms that she was really good at. And I feel like I really, that really resonated for me as someone who was deeply interested in academic work and research and reading and writing and not necessarily going out and I don't know, fighting in the streets or becoming a cop, which is basically what Harry does. And yeah. <laughs> I, so I, there have been, there have been some Snape Hermione stories that I have really enjoyed and some, I don't know. I, there's a lot of, I never like got super into that pairing, but I think that I always did feel uncomfortable with the Hermione and Ron pairing. And I think what you just said actually makes a lot of sense because, you know, we're both people with PhDs who partnered with people with PhDs. And (laughs) I think I always felt like, Hermione, are you sure you're not going to get bored? (laughs) Um, And it's nothing against Ron. I really like Ron. And I really don't like the stories where Ron is treated as a villain. I hate um, that. Or like there's a lot of stories where Ron becomes like an abusive husband which I really don't enjoy and there's the Mm. same thing with Jenny too like Mm -hmm. a lot of stories treat Jenny as a shrew once she and Harry get married and I also Mm. I don't know how I feel about the like Harry Jenny pairing either to be honest but Mm. I think part of that might be that maybe people shouldn't be getting married to their high school sweethearts um, (laughs) as like a matter of course but that's just me Mm mm-hmm yeah, shared trauma should yeah. not be the basis of your right exactly <laughs> your marriage. <laughs> but I, I was also thinking, like, what is the appeal of Severus Snape? Because I also find him to be a very appealing, interesting character. But I was once like talking with my partner about who was not he was never into Harry Potter. He's he's seen the movies. Mm-hmm in part because he would like go see them with me but at one point during one of those movies when we were watching it he leaned over and whispered in my ear what's a horcrux (laughs) because he didn't know what was going on but I was like talking with him once about like some of the dynamics in a I, I can't remember who it was it was a relationship between Severus Snape and somebody else and he was like so you're telling me that Snape is is like he's just like an incel cuck and I was like, yeah, he kind of is, I guess. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so oh my God, that, I never thought of that. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. So then he was like noted incel cuck, Severus Snape. But he is so appealing. And I wonder how much of that might be that he, I think part of it, you're right, is the like Alan Rickman representation that makes him sardonic and lends him a certain amount of like austerity, maybe like. There's a weight to his presence, I think, that is kind of interesting. But he is also really competent. If you think about how many years he managed to survive as a spy, he's really good at what he does. He's really bad at being a teacher. Like, really, really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, and I, I don't even know that I blame him for that as much as I blame Dumbledore for just being like, well, got to keep an eye on you. Let's make you a teacher. Yeah, Dumbledore's approach to hiring teachers is pretty suspect. Like, <laughs> it's not great. It's not the first time he's hired someone to keep an eye on them and it's been a disaster, right? Like, yeah. Trelawney, he has done this too yeah. as well. She is also not a very good teacher for very different reasons. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, Dumbledore. Um, oh, Dumbledore. I, I think that actually Dumbledore might be the character that I end up having the worst feeling. Like the the difference between how I felt about him when I was reading the books for the first time and the way I feel about him now is probably probably like the farthest removed. But that's neither here nor there. So yes, yeah, so I got into the the HP fanfic after meeting Brit. Uh, we did our PhDs together and they were starting some research on Sycophant Hex and the writers there. And there was a story that they talked a lot about in conference presentations and stuff like that, which is the one where Severus is going by the name Carlos. And I can't even remember the name of the story now. Oh, hold on. Let me find it. <laughs> um, but like Severus Snape has like, he he faked his death and like has run off to live in Hawaii or something like that under the name Carlos, which still makes me laugh. And Hermione, who is like either still married to Ron or in the process of getting divorced from Ron, has gone with her children on a vacation to Hawaii. She happens to run into Severus Snape and they hit it off, I guess, in an awkward way where first it's like, weren't you supposed to be dead? And he's like, no, I'm hiding. Don't tell anybody and all of this stuff. So I read that and I was like, this is really interesting i also had the wonderful realization because i had been writing fan fiction for years without knowing it was something other people did i thought i was just like a weird kid who did this weird thing and then hid it from everybody you were just um, tina writing your erotic friend fiction <laughs> i was um i think most of it was um Mercedes Lackey, Heralds of Voldemort fan fiction. There's a lot mm. of that going on when I was younger. <laughs> so I, I I did find the title of the story, yes. by the way. It's At the Beach. One of the writers that I worked with a lot uh, in my early research and who's who I discovered through Sick of Antex and who has a fairly uh, open presence in fan fiction and has since published original fiction is called Chivalric. And uh, yeah, so it's by it's by her. And yeah, that's the story is called At the Beach and Stephanie has <laughs> has summarized it beautifully that Severus Snape has moved to, I don't know if we know it's Hawaii, it's somewhere in yeah. a tropical area and he's renamed himself Carlos and uh, it's not clear what he does, but he what he seems to do is like subsist by doing tours or something and in in doing that he like meets women and hooks up with them and he sees Hermione with her kids and doesn't realize it's Hermione at first and is like ah this is a woman who's unhappily married I will I, perfect I will opportunity for Carlos I will conquer her yeah uh so <laughs> yes that's the story mm -hmm. yeah I I really like Severus Remus stories I got really into those and especially the stories where, like, 
Well, one of the things I love, I do love Remus, I think is part of it. And I love that yes. Remus is maybe one of the most emotionally intelligent characters yes. in the entire thing. Like, yeah, and he's almost he's not a, British in the book. <laughs> right. He's And he's such a beautiful depiction of like non-toxic masculinity and, yeah, you know, someone like living with a chronic illness. It just, I love Remus. And so severus remus stories where remus is trying to like help severus confront and and like deal with his trauma is a real uh it hits a it hits a warm gooey place in my heart i Um, also love a remus severus pairing i think those are that's one of my absolute favorite pairings for sure and i feel like they are they are the otp of my heart for sure yeah (laughs) I've read quite a few Harry Severus stories, mostly ones that are set after the the final battle. The one that I most recently got into, and I don't have the name of it, which makes me sad, but Severus, again, has like, I don't think he like faked his death entirely, but he is, um, he's living very quietly. Like there's a very few people who know that he's alive and where he is. Mm-hmm. And he is dealing with like aging and PTSD. And basically his like, his prostate's all messed up. And so he has to like start trying to like deal with his prostate. And in going out to like, deal with that he runs into harry who is then like obsessed with finding him again because he like needs to thank severus or something like that meanwhile Mm. like harry's very public engagement with jenny has fallen apart Mm. and this is one of those stories that treats jenny kind of poorly but a big part of the reason it's fallen apart is because harry is in the process of realizing that he's gay Mm -hmm. and it also comes out like he gets Severus back into working at Hogwarts on the cleanup to like help repair Severus's image. And it mm-hmm. comes out that Severus is gay. And then Harry starts coming to him with all these questions. And most of it is Severus being like, why won't people leave me alone? <laughs> but also it is it is one of the most triumphant orgasms I have ever read in a fan fiction because it takes Severus so long to get there because of his poor prostate. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, that one was really fun. And I think part of what's fun about it is like, it, it, it's making people cope with their trauma in a way that the, the books never do. Like there's a ton of trauma that everybody's yeah. just like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. But also, yeah, well, first of all, if you think about I actually think so that the book that I feel like got sort of the most maligned was Order of the Phoenix. And a lot of people's, a lot of people's complaints were how annoying they found Harry. And mm-hmm. I was just like, he just saw a schoolmate and somewhat friendly person murdered in front of his eyes mm-hmm. and was for the first time like held hostage and almost murdered himself really directly and you're con- you find it weird that he's blowing up at his friends and doesn't seem to know what to do with this emotion and energy and is having nightmares and i just thought like it was the weirdest read for a lot of people i thought i couldn't understand why they didn't understand why mm-hmm. first of all like harry's what 15 in the book mm-hmm. and it's like first of all he's 15 and if this is the first time he's being a shitty teenager that's really really surprising and second mm-hmm. of all 
that's trauma, dude. Like what? <laughs> what? But yeah, the rest of the trauma really is just tied up in a night night like a neat little bow and put under mm-hmm. the 20 years between the final battle and the epilogue and you're just like uh okay <laughs> yeah. yeah that's I think a lot of fandom does deal with trauma in a way that is not really dealt with in the book at all I think that's one really appealing thing that the fans have done I feel like yeah I feel like Harry Potter in particular is a story where I'm just like, yeah, I love what fandom has done to Harry mm-hmm. Potter. <laughs> not all yeah. of that, not everything that fandom has done to Harry Potter, obviously, but there are some things I don't like. But I do think there there are a lot of writers who've really expanded on what is the trauma like or what is the world like or how can we fix it? And we're focusing on things that were always fucked up about the books. Like I realized in this story rereading it this morning the somewhere I have never traveled there's this little throwaway line I think it's a throwaway because we never come back to it but where the house elves were finally developing a union (laughs) you know which is kind of amazing and then like Azkaban is the most fucked up prison anyone could possibly imagine like there's a a lot about the world that fans are like whoa hold on like (laughs) we need to deal with this in some kind of meaningful way and I appreciate that quite a bit. Yeah, I really enjoy serious Remus stories, I think, for similar reasons, because you have, again, Remus, who is emotionally intelligent, mm-hmm. has had a lifetime of like dealing with his emotions about his trauma and the way that he has to live now because he's a werewolf. And then you have Sirius, who has been in this prison where your emotions are sucked out of you constantly Mm -hmm. and like them trying to have some kind of relationship or in a lot of stories pick up a relationship Mm -hmm. that was existing before and then got sidetracked because of you know Voldemort there's a a video essay that I will make sure we we post when like the notes and stuff for this because Mm -hmm. it it's really it's been really informative for how I look back on Harry Potter now and one of the things that that video essay talks about is the the like neoliberal worldview that pervades Harry Potter Mm -hmm. so the way that Harry firsthand witnesses a miscarriage of justice because his godfather is sent to prison Mm-hmm. for a crime he did not commit and he is there for years and when he escapes and attempts to secure evidence of his innocence what happens is he's immediately sentenced to death right like mm-hmm. harry watches this happen mm-hmm. and then as soon as he graduates he becomes a cop <laughs> um, yeah and, like the fact that so the the whole thing is is about this like bad external figure of Voldemort doing bad things and like the systems get messed up because Voldemort's doing bad things rather than actually looking at like the systems Mm -hmm. being a problem. So it's like Voldemort moves all of these systems to evil stuff, but once he's gone, everything's fine again. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though there's still the possibility of like complete miscarriages of justice and yeah. you're subjecting prisoners to horrifying experiences and 
And once again, I don't have the name of the essay or the person who put it out, but I will make sure that right. that ends up in yeah. the notes because it's a really great video essay. And I actually realized that a lot of the stories that I really love now are stories that acknowledge that these systems are like weird and bad and are trying yeah. to like do something about it or make something different about it. Yeah, it's so weird. On the one hand, I guess it's not weird. We, you know, we see in the story, Harry becomes interested in this idea of becoming an Auror. I guess, uh, what book would it, would, it, would it have been? The fourth book, maybe there's that whole scene where they are all flying on brooms past the parliament to get him to wherever. Uh, actually, maybe it started around Prisoner of Azkaban because they're all trying to keep Harry safe from from Sirius because he's escaped but at some point like he 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 meets and, and learns about horrors and decides that he wants to become one uh, so a cop basically it's really interesting because in the book it sort of is like he imagines it and it seems to be presented as like really one key way to be resistant against Voldemort and the forces of, of evil in the world mm -hmm. and his parents resisted Voldemort but neither one of them became a cop <laughs> and so it's like it's a really weird sort of world where like basically Harry's only option and yeah I guess this is neoliber neoliberalism like his only option for like full resistance is to join the institution in a really bizarre way yeah you know we know a lot of fans actually we never know officially what Hermione is doing I don't know what JK has said on it and I don't care but yeah, like a lot of fans imagine Hermione is becoming like basically the magical ACLU, but specifically for magical creatures. But yeah, like Harry becomes a cop and it's like, that's not the only way to resist forces of evil. And in fact, is probably one of the worst ways to do it. But there's never any like thoughtful address, like addressing of horrors as an institution mm -hmm. or the... Ministry for Magic as an institution and certainly no thoughtful talking about Azkaban. I think there's one throwaway line where Dumbledore is like, I told them not to trust the the Dementors. And you're like, uh. <laughs> yeah. I think that's an understatement, you know. Well, and like Harry himself is like a victim of a corrupt court system. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but he's, I, mm. Anyway, it's so frustrating to me now. The fact, I guess this this is one of those ways in which you have like the world that exists behind the world and it feels so like special and magical. And then you get older and you realize that the world behind the world is exactly the same as our world, but more whimsical. <laughs> like they, they wallpaper yeah. over the horrible things with whimsy. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, well, you still have slaves and the worst possible prisons imaginable, but thankfully yeah. you can, you know, have little rhyming <laughs> spells yeah. that clean up your house for you. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you have a game with a, a golden thing that flies around. Hooray. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's also really disappointing in the growing up phase, but I also feel like that's where fans really came in to mm -hmm. expand and save the universe that I think was ever otherwise like really maybe unsafe unsavable in that regard but there was yeah. just enough promise I guess for people to play with and that's why I feel very much that like Harry Potter now and we'll get to this question later but I feel like 
Harry Potter is is a thing now that really does belong to the fans. At least that's the way I feel about it. That the Harry Potter I'm in love with is not anymore the universe as it was presented to me in high school. It's the universe that I found through fandom. Yeah. Uh, or the possibilities of the universe. Because I, I do have a couple of things here in my notes about some things that are kind of troubling, even within one of my favorite pairings. So uh, yeah, uh, let's go back to Severus Snape and Hermione Granger. And you mentioned Severus Snape and Harry Potter, which is yeah, for some people. A lot and I made, same. when you said it, I made a face because for some reason, Hermione Granger and Severus Snape, I'm like, that's fine. But for some reason with Harry Potter, I just go, ah. And yeah. I, I, it could just be part of it is with Hermione, I can kind of put this like magical thinking in my head where there are meeting of minds and, and right. There's a lot of ways in which people try to get around the problem of the 20-year age gap between them and the way that she's written. And a lot of the stories do occur after she's graduated, but there are some issues. So maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, I I think we'll just raise this question now. So with Hermione Granger and and Severus and, and Harry Potter and Severus, there are they're not limited to stories about after graduation. There are plenty of stories where they're starting to hook up as their students at Hogwarts before the age of consent in the UK is 16 and and the age of consent in the US is 18. And stories play around with both. Usually, I haven't really seen stories that play around with them hooking up before 16, but definitely before 18, which some of that's depending upon what country you grew up in, I suppose. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like there's a lot of playing around with Severus Snape not being a pedophile in these stories and people being interested in them not having sort of pedophilic interests. Uh, (laughs) But a lot of fans, other fans who look down on certain pairings really do look down on the Hermione Granger and Harry Potter Severus Snape pairings because they think all all the writers and readers and those particular shipper subgroups are pedophiles so how would you respond to that is is there pedophilia inherent in those stories this is like such a this is a really fraught question for me and not just in this fandom but in a lot of fandoms and so much of i think okay so we have to like i think talking about the difference between the like uk age of consent and the u.s age of consent is a really good point to bring up because Mm -hmm. like our ideas of what constitutes pedophilia itself are so culturally informed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like there there are certainly um, more definitive definitions out there, like the kind of definitions you would find in something like the DSM-5 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But for for everyday people, just like looking at these things, we have a felt sense of like, when something moves from pedophilia to okay and whether or not that felt sense also coincides with the laws in our particular area Mm -hmm. are you know uh, sometimes yes sometimes no kind of thing I think that what is less troubling for me than the actual age gap here is the teacher-student thing and I think that a big part of that is Uh, So full disclosure, Britt and I have both been teachers ourselves. And so like, I feel hyper aware of the power differential there Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't feel good. Like I, 
I don't like it. But at the same time, I've read stories. I've read some of these like Harry Potter, Severus Snape or Hermione Granger, Severus Snape stories where they are still in school. And I like enjoy the story. But there is a part of me in the back of my head that's like, you shouldn't be enjoying this. How dare you? Yeah, it is really weird. I I don't I have as well. And I again, I think a lot of the stories are presenting. So a lot of I, I generally have not been able to read stories where Hermione is under 17 and I, I part of that I think is like really those didn't tend to be a part of the uh, available stories in sycophant hex and I think that was yeah. really a community thing like people were very much like they shouldn't be feeling romantic feelings for each other until she's 17 and they really should not be having sex until she turns 18 and that was that there was kind of that was really moderated I think pretty yeah. heavily yeah, so but I have enjoyed the stories and I, I think part of it now is, okay, two things. One, when I was starting to read these stories, I was 21 years old and I think in my brain, I was sort of putting myself with like, I'm 21 and I'm imagining being with, with Severus as me as 18 or me as 21. And I feel like in my brain, I was sort of like, yeah, these two people are, are they've got an age difference, but it's kind of like an age difference. We, we not, I didn't see in my parents, but I definitely saw in other, other people's parents, like 15 yeah. to 20 years was not entirely unusual. And this was also again in the early 2000s, I think as well. And so there, there's certainly a sense for me where there was definitely some cognitive dissonance happening to read these stories and enjoy them because of the way the characters were written and how they kind of riffed off of each other. Cause you know, not only does Hermione get to be like really competent, interesting academic and, you know, but she also gets to kind of be a little bit sardonic and that's, it's, it's mm -hmm. a Hermione. I think I really enjoyed. Yeah. And it's a Severus. I really enjoyed. And so I think that really in the end was what it was. I, as being a teacher and having taught, 18 year olds and 19 year olds since I was 23 and certainly having taught them now in my thirties, but even at 23, first of all, it's like, I was not interested in 18 year olds, even when I first started teaching. And I certainly yeah. was not finding any of my students attractive whatsoever, ever. Like that has never been an experience I have ever once had. And for me, I think a lot, a lot of that is like the mentor-mentee relationship mm -hmm. that is part of that. There's a power differential there that you have to acknowledge, and that is really important. And so even when I have had students who are older than me, it's always like, I don't even know that we can really be friends after I've been your teacher, at least not at first, because it's like, yeah, this was a, a, a dynamic where I'm acting as a mentor as well as it, to a relatively small degree, especially early on in my teaching career, I'm acting as basically a gatekeeper. And that's a level of power differential that is not comfortable and is not, in my mind, conducive to friendships, let alone romantic or sexual relationships. So yeah, I don't think everyone who's involved in, in teaching adults would agree with that. Uh, we've had some interesting thoughts about <laughs> that. But for me, I, I agree. I find that dynamic really troubling because again, you know, teachers are, are serving as mentors. They're serving as gatekeepers. They're serving as guides. They're there to help you develop without this weird sexual 
uh, it's all very gross, I think, in that regard, yeah. even more so than the the age difference in and of itself. I will also and- say, just as a final note, I do think there is also like when you start to get to 15 or 20 years and that's a difference when they're 18 to 20 and the other person is in their 40s that the life difference there is also a power differential, right? They're just yeah. not in the same stage of life. They're not set up. They're not, they're, they, they're not like fully actualized <laughs> people who know who they are yet. And yeah. you, at that stage, you just can't have an equal footing with someone who has already gone through that process of figuring out who they are, getting a more stable position in life to whatever degree that's possible. It's not, it's not equal at all. And so it, I don't know that I would call it pedophilia in that sense, although I can see why some people would, but I do think it is a troubling dynamic. Yeah. And it's probably why I don't read these stories anymore because I'm like, yeah. oh, now that I'm, I think I stopped reading these stories really at, at around like actively reading them for enjoyment and uh, not just for research, probably around the time I was about 27, 28. Because I yeah. was like, I can't quite deal with this dynamic anymore. Yeah. But there there are a lot of people writing these stories still. And I don't know. I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to poop on people. I think one thing that is really interesting, and I don't know if this is the same for Harry Severus stories, but one thing that came up a lot, because there was a lot of, as I said earlier, a lot of fan writers who were working really hard to make the Hermione Severus pairing make sense in some kind of way. And one of the really common tropes of that was these really dubious consent stories where basically like Hermione is endangered by the Death Eaters and either they're trying to marry her to to Draco or to Lucius. And so Severus, (laughs) because apparently Severus Snape is just like, what what's the word I want? Apparently he's like, there's nothing meaningful in his life. He can throw his whole life away because of his one mistake he made when he was an idiotic 19 year old. So, you know, he, he ends up having to marry Hermione to both secure his position as spy, but also to save her from being consistently raped and beaten and mistreated by other death eaters. And then there's a number of stories that are even grosser. Well, first of all, in a lot of those stories where he marries uh, Hermione, which she's often still in school to protect her from being married off to some other death eater. Often they have to have sex because obviously the marriage could easily be annulled if they haven't, uh, yeah. <laughs> they haven't had sex with each other, which is a really interesting, weird medieval law thing going on. I don't know. And in those stories, it's always, well, in every story where they, they have sex under these conditions, like, they have to do it and he's like drunk or something and then he's disgusted with himself and Hermione is like only minorly traumatized and somehow pleased by it it's a really weird dynamic that I don't know what to do with yeah and then there's the worst stories where Hermione has been captured and the Death Eaters are like let's all rape Hermione and and Severus is like she's mine and then he has to rape her publicly in front of other death eaters but also take dominance over her so that she doesn't get raped by anyone else and I'm just like and then somehow they fall in love after that and you're just like what why yeah the the like the marriage law fix yeah um, are always really interesting Mm -hmm. I just I actually just remembered one it was 
it, it was one of the weirder ones that I read in which like because the wizarding population was so low after Voldemort was defeated they instituted the marriage law um, and there's like a ton of versions of these fics out there in yeah. this particular one every witch that was of childbearing age had to marry multiple men so like Hermione mm-hmm. married like seven people and they were Snape Lucius Malfoy Draco Malfoy <laughs> Arthur Weasley <laughs> uh Neville Longbottom Sirius and it might have been Harry I think Harry might have been the seventh one that's an extremely <laughs> that's an extremely and there's I was one just point thinking, like that's just the most problematic polycule that ever existed it was so weird <laughs> so and there's one dysfunctional point where there's this whole thing about like they know that hermione's pregnant with a malfoy baby but they don't know which malfoy it is um <laughs> it's it's bad it's not bad. It's not a bad story. It was a bad situation. Yeah. Um, and very strange. And I think I'm in the same, like, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but it's hard for me to imagine. Well, it's not even hard for, it's not hard for me to, it's hard for me to understand even in myself. Mm-hmm. Like I, sometimes I can't tell, am I reading this in the same way I'm like watching a train wreck or like the rubbernecking at an accident thing? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I not more turned off by this than I am right now and there have definitely been some where I'm just like nope I do like I'm not going there Mm -hmm. and maybe part of it was that in this one with the seven husbands a lot of the focus was on Hermione getting to like go through this sexual awakening by getting to try out all of these different kinds of sex with these different partners but it was it's it's interesting that's the best thing I can say (laughs) yeah so that's one key dynamic of a lot of Hermione Severus stories that are well there's two dynamics one key dynamic that comes up a lot is like Hermione has a sexual awakening because before she was too bookish and too focused on academic learning to try anything with anyone else and so Severus is her first experience and he's like for some reason really experienced as a as a lover and yeah and is really good at it which is uh interesting The other dynamic that comes up in fewer stories, especially kind of like the forced marriage stories, is Hermione and Severus are actually both virgins. And so they're both having a really uncomfortable and weird sexual awakening. And they they always have to have sex in all of these stories. It's like the marriage law requires that you consummate your marriage or something bad happens. I don't know. Yeah. And so then they're having this it's interesting because the dubious consent or non-consensual element is a state institutional level taking away of consent rather than a more interpersonal level of, of consent issue yeah and I don't know like it seems like a weird step of removing just I don't know it's a weird way to play around with how what rape is and I think Mm -hmm. maybe it's also just a sign of the times when many of these stories were being written where we were still working through like what the fuck is consent and how does it work and you know maybe part of the stories are focused on dealing with gendered violence and how how do we manage that how do we manage the 
the trauma and the interpersonal relationships of incredibly gendered violence in certain ways. I don't know. Uh, I don't think they deal with it well, but I do wonder if some of it is kind of dealing with that. And I think a lot of the stories that are sort of the, the dubious consent where Severus has to rape Hermione and or marry her to save her from worse rape or something is is kind of an interesting like yeah I don't know it's, it's almost like a really grim view of gender yeah gendered violence and, and sort of gender binary and gender expectations in the world we live in and I right. yeah it's, it's like a almost like a writing through the trauma of the world that we're stuck with right that feeling that like if you aren't claimed by a man you continue to be unsafe yeah like, yeah and maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe part of those stories isn't so much like, I mean, they, they do have, a lot of them do have some very, very explicit description of, of sexual engagement. But I do, it, it's this really, really, really tricky boundary between like sexual enjoyment and and consent and, mm-hmm. and you know, women really just not being safe. Yeah. Whether, whether they're in a relationship with a quote unquote good man or not is kind of an interesting and very real experience for so many people. Yeah. I will say one of my, so I I do want to talk about our favorite pairings because I (laughs) think that's kind of important, but one pairing I actually have really enjoyed and one relationship trope that I've really enjoyed in Harry Potter fandom are thruples. I feel like Harry Potter fandom, almost all of the stories I've read with thruples are some of the healthiest most loving relationships I have ever read and the best ones I've read have been Hermione Severus and Lucius of all pairings <laughs> for some reason it's always post-graduation it's always like they're you know Lucius realizes that he was mistaken and and he kind of it gets a redemption arc and part of that is his falling in love with and becoming close with Hermione and Severus and basically like usually what happens is Hermione and Severus are together and they take Lucius on as a third and they're just Mm -hmm. I don't know why they're always such lovely supporting funny heartfelt stories and (laughs) so I feel like I, I one thing I would say is fandom imaginations of thruples is I feel like if I were ever interested in polyamory which I don't think I would be but if I ever were I would hope that my polyamorous relationship would be that healthy and in fact I think any relationship should be that healthy as healthy as those relationships are written (laughs) yeah I I can't think of I know I've read thruple stories but I don't think I remember any particular like set of thruples that I (laughs) especially enjoyed like off the top of my head I do think that the stories that pair Lucius and Severus are really in like I've read some that have been like Lucius and Narcissus Narcissa and Severus oh yeah uh-huh and actually some that are like Lucius and Narcissa and Severus and Remus oh yeah um <laughs> that's wild. very saucy very saucy <laughs> The other, the other stories that I really enjoy, which we mentioned briefly earlier, I love a good Draco redemption story. Oh, um, me I'll too. admit, I'm a total sucker for it. Yeah, um, me too. I enjoy Draco-Hermione <laughs> pairings. I enjoy mm-hmm. Harry-Draco pairings. Yeah. But I, and I think maybe part of this goes back to like the, the whole thing about trauma, 
but I like stories that let Draco reflect on his like upbringing but also his own culpability and like Mm, yeah one of my favorite stories of this type is like um Harry's working as an R and they they hire Draco in as a a specialist in dismantling trap houses that were set up by death eaters so there's Mm. like all of these houses around Britain that have been identified as trap houses especially Bellatrix Bellatrix makes especially nasty ones so they have Draco come in and a big they make it clear that a big part of this is the government considers Draco expendable but he's also really good at this job so this is part of his like community service thing Mm -hmm. and so Harry and Draco start working together on these trap houses and like uh at first Harry is really mean to Draco and Mm -hmm. Draco is also He's still kind of snotty, but he's also clearly been, like, worn down by his life thus far. And Harry also begins reflecting on, like, his own culpability in their rivalry. So I like those stories quite a bit. And actually, the the big Harry Potter fan fiction that I started writing was a Draco Malfoy redemption story. I love that. That involves him taking a muggle road trip across the U.S. while listening to Nirvana. So... <laughs> Oh, that's so perfect. I love a Draco redemption. My favorite Draco is fandom Draco because so much of the Draco that I've read is, and we, they're unlike with Lucius, there is actually a basis in the books for this. I think Lucius happens because uh, Jason Isaacs is incredibly beautiful. And also yeah, <laughs> in his interviews is just very like, disarming and and kind of like you know he has this kind of self just like a a sense of humor that he's okay with making fun of himself but yeah with Draco like you already see the seeds of him being like this is a a world I was raised to be a certain way in and I I don't like that that's uh, (laughs) this is not good and my favorite Draco is the fandom Draco where he has realized his wrong he's trying to put it right and he's just this lovely snarky sardonic again I love a snarky sardonic Draco that's my Draco and he very often is just like a sardonic snarky queen Draco that's my favorite Draco and I think my favorite pairing in the universe is Draco and Harry I feel like the rivals Mm -hmm. to to friends to lovers is really compelling and I also and I think part of it is too is like if Harry had become friends with Draco at some point would Draco have maybe been able to get out of the overwhelming system of his family and his family's friends sooner I don't know yeah that's a good one yeah I I really love I think my favorite Ron pairing is Ron and Luna. I've yeah. seen that a lot. I really love Ron and Luna. <laughs> yeah. I just think he would, he under, I mean, so I think Harry also is very understandable of, of Luna's idiosyncratic way, but I feel like Ron's, Ron's own idiosyncrasies and anxieties would pair well with Luna's idiosyncrasies, but also like, she's just kind of chill She's so chill in a way that Hermione definitely is not. And so I think, I think mm-hmm. Ron actually needs someone who's pretty chill and who's willing to go with the flow. And I, I love mm-hmm. a, I love, I love a Ron Luna. And yeah, I think probably one of my, I know I've read a lot of Severus and Hermione, but I actually, I think my favorite pairing for Severus is Remus. 
for sure. Yeah. Those especially are my especially single dad Remus when when they write oh, the stories yeah. where like Tonks <laughs> dies but Remus is still alive and he's trying to take care of Teddy. Mm-hmm. I like those. I haven't seen any of those, but I yeah I I probably won't go barreling back into the fandom to find them yeah. at this point. But that is that's intriguing. That's definitely yeah. intriguing. Are there are there any pairings where you're just kind of immediately like. Ugh. Severus Harry yeah (laughs) I can't I can't handle it I don't know why I that one just makes me go eh." that's about it I think I think I've read a a bunch of other pairings where I'm like okay I do feel a little bit weird about Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall oh I've never I don't even want apparently that's one of the ones I don't even (laughs) want to look for them like I've never I I um, never looked for them they came up whenever I would read gen stories and occasionally like usually you just have a huge cast of people that are surrounding Severus and Hermione and one of the pairings in in a lot of those was especially the ones where if they were published before Rowling's big announcement that Dumbledore is gay that was like kind of the key pairing and I don't know if it was just like they're the two oldest people at Hogwarts Uh (laughs) like is that it I don't know that that one's a little bit weird to me too. Yeah. I read one Harry Voldemort story and it was too weird. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about Voldemort. I was like, I it don't want to think of Voldemort too... with anyone. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was just it was way too weird and it was like surprisingly consensual and like yeah. Harry keeps sneaking off to like go find Voldemort and engage in kinky sex. Just <laughs> Yeah. Harry might become a cop in this neoliberal world where Harry's not particularly uh, attuned to the problems at an institutional level. But Harry basically being fine with fascism for sex is (laughs) just not a thing I could see happening. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Voldemort with anyone I, I have trouble with, even with Bellatrix. And I feel like Voldemort Bellatrix has come up and a number of stories and then was sort of I guess canonized in the play basically mm-hmm. and it Bellatrix I think is a really intriguing character she's yeah she's a loose canon she's definitely very devout after many years in Azkaban has clearly had a psychotic break mm-hmm. for sure and I feel like in the stories with where she's giving up her body basically to Voldemort really just through wanting to make sure he has an heir that's basically usually the stories I've seen this happen in Mm -hmm. she her agency is taken away more than it already was in the original books and she's shown up as way more of a victim and I feel like you're not supposed to see Bellatrix as a victim of Voldemort or of her horrific fascist beliefs I suppose you could read her that way I think yeah. you could easily read her as a victim of Azkaban, as anyone who escaped from there would be. Yeah. But yeah, it's a re- it's really weird. And I just, uh, any any Voldemort, anything, I'm like, Voldemort is clearly a, a completely antisocial. If we have any understanding of a psychopath, that's it. <laughs> like, yeah. he, that's who he is. And he, he has no capacity to pair with anyone in any kind of meaningful way. And I just find that yeah. a really weird thing to imagine personally. Yep. Yep. 
Well, I'm kind of, there's so much here that we haven't gotten to yet. I'm kind of feeling like we might need an episode two. We may do. This. Yeah, because we're we're coming up on our two hours. Well, yep. do we want to, what do we want to do with that? Do we want to address a couple of final questions and then say in episode two, we'll get to uh, the, the downfall of the fandom? Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. This, is, this is the love episode, even though we've talked about some problematic things. And then the next one will be the hate episode. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of questions here that I that I put together, but maybe what we can end with is two questions. So yeah. So the first question would be, what's your takeaway from what do you still hold in your heart from Harry Potter that you will always hold on to? Um, Honestly, I think the thing that comes up the most for me still is Hogwarts itself, like the setting of Hogwarts. I've been playing Elden Ring and there's a part in Elden Ring where you're at the Sorcerer's School of Raya Lucaria. And I'm like, it's it's impossible for me to see any other like magic school without comparing it to Hogwarts and like Mm -hmm. the version I imagined from reading the books and the version we saw in the movies, which I thought was really beautifully realized. And it's just, it's still so appealing to me, that particular setting. So if there was, if there was one thing that I think I would pull out and like really hold on to in my heart it would be Hogwarts itself I think yeah yeah it's hard not to love Hogwarts despite the fact that if you think about it too much you're like this is a really dangerous place for kids to be going it's so dangerous (laughs) why are children here did parents not have to sign release forms (laughs) well they have to sign release forms for the children to go into town where things are all quite a bit safer but it's yeah that's an interesting thing what do what do I still hold? I still hold a lot in my heart from Harry Potter, if I'm honest. I the magic is one of the key parts of it, I think, for me. Mm-hmm. And kind of the almost the theory behind the magic as well, like how magic works and what it can do and what you can use it for in your life. And one thing I really enjoyed reading, and also when I, I wrote some fan fiction, I really enjoyed imagining and making up new spells and mm-hmm thinking through what the Latin would be and how would it work and what's the theory behind it. And I think for me, it really is the magic of the world. And I think the second part of it is what I was mentioning at the opening of of the episode is there is a, a huge sense of found and forged family in a yeah. way that is actually really beautiful. There's a lot of love that is made possible in these stories and it's something that has been furthermore made possible among fan communities not to say and we can definitely talk about ways in which fan communities have been really problematic in harry potter fandom but Mm -hmm. i think largely the thing i carry with me is this sense of finding your family and and making that family and making your life and finding yourself as a person aside from parents or other authority figures or the status quo and I think that is something that is made possible in just the depth and breadth of the world and I think that's why it has continued to be so inviting and wonderful for fans to play with yeah your answer is so much better than mine no I love Hogwarts (laughs) it's just you took Hogwarts and so I had to think of something else (laughs) yeah okay 
So I guess our final question, and we can revisit this next episode, is what do we mean by fan? That I, that was the question you raised. Yeah. So I think this is something we'll probably touch on in the next episode. I can kind of see it down here in the notes. But like, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, being a fan of something involves buying things, I think. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it being a fan is the difference between being willing to just read a book through the library or like needing to buy the book, I oh, think. Yeah, yeah, um, ownership ownership yes that Mm. feeling that like this is now something that I have all the time and there are there are things in my life where even though I am trying to be more conscious of of my like purchasing habits and my budget and all of these things there's still things where it's like no I want to make sure that I have access to this all the time Mm -hmm. and most of the time I also want for the makers to get some compensation for making this thing I really love it's more problematic in this case, which I think we will talk about next episode, but there's also, so there's like the, I don't feel like I'm a fan so much in terms of like that part of it. And so I guess maybe the, the other part of being a fan is just like how much headspace it takes up for you. Like, Mm. Mm -hmm. and I, you know, in part because of the ADHD, I, I, dive into a lot of holes I have a lot of obsessions and it's Mm -hmm. interesting to see which ones are kind of like flavor of the week things and which ones become part of my like regular rotation of obsessions and escapism yeah so like Harry Potter is definitely it's on a cycle like it is part of my like I'm gonna guess annual it's like an annual cycle Mm -hmm. of like revisiting a lot of these past obsessions and so just the sheer amount of space that it continues to like take up in my head feels like being a fan. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I, both of those answers are so great because I definitely have purchased official stuff. It does take up a lot of headspace. I really think it's only been very recently where I've even had the bandwidth to actually engage and look directly at what Rowling has been doing and mm-hmm work through what how that works for me mm-hmm. I was trying to write a story about a non-binary Hermione and because she's a character that I have really loved and been intrigued by and I suppose of any of the characters of Harry Potter I probably identify closest with in some yeah. different ways and so I was trying to kind of write like a realization of non-binary gender identity for Hermione in a way that it happened with me. And I just got stuck. And I I think if I had tried to write that, maybe, well, first of all, I didn't really know the term well or come out in any kind of capacity until about 2019. But if I tried to write that story in 2019, I don't know that I was kind of ready with my own coming out to write it. And now so much has happened with Rowling. It's like, ugh it's hard. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it will ever be a story that I actually write because it's become more and more difficult to square the, basically my headcanon of all of these characters and this entire universe with, with who I am as a person and where, where I'm going in the world. So yeah, yeah, headspace. And how, how do you like deal with the emotional difficulty of really really loving something and then it 
its creator becomes really toxic. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something we'll focus on next, next week for sure. Next episode. Wow. I'm excited. What a lot. I'm excited. (laughs) excited. I, when I wrote up these notes, which are not that long, I did not expect us to only get through the first page and a half. (laughs) I thought we'd get through all of them. Well, next time we're going to talk about more what it means to be a fan and we're going to get into what in the world has Rowling done to her own fandom and her her own universe (laughs) and how we how we want to respond to that so thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time bye y'all